Hello everyone, welcome to Scotty on the Horn. This is a podcast where I invite experts from a variety of fields and discuss topics that interest me. I'm very excited today to have my first guest ever on Scotty on the Horn, Dr. Jeffrey Kara. Jeff is a close friend of mine and just so happens to be a prolific researcher in the field of concussion and concussion rehabilitation. Jeff has published many articles in top-end journals and is a co-editor of the book Psychological Aspects of Sport-Related Concussion. This is a Rootledge publication where him and his co-editor brought together some of the finest minds in research as it relates to the psychology of concussion. Fortunately for me, Jeff is a buddy of mine and he let me hang on to his coattails and he tossed me a chapter. So if anyone's looking for it, it's not an easy read, it is scientific. But if you're looking to get the most up-to-date information on the psychology of concussion, I would highly recommend psychological aspects of sport-related concussion. A little bit more about Jeff. He's one of those annoyingly impressive people who can achieve success in multiple domains in life. Jeff was a skilled hockey player who spent some time at Merrimack College, played for the St. John Sea Dogs, moved on to play for St. FX University, had a tryout with the Florida Panthers, had multiple professional offers in Europe, but chose to quit hockey and pursue a career in academia. In doing so, Jeff pursued his PhD at McGill University, did a postdoc at McGill, moved on to do a second postdoc at Yale University, and finally settled as an assistant professor at the University of Montreal. So, without further ado, welcome Dr. Jeffrey Caron. Dr. Caron. <laughs> What's going on, buddy? Oh, that's excellent. Oh, you like you like my studio? <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, how'd you get access to uh you got you got a beautiful Bruins dressing room and I got a fat cat in the background. <laughs> it was expensive to set up buying all the skates too. You know. Yeah, how did you manage that anyways? That's a good setup. Yeah, yeah. You less salaries, you know. No expense spared for the Scotty Rathwell podcast, eh? Yeah, yeah. I got uh, a hard flex on you. <laughs> Jeff and I both had babies, what, 10 days apart? Yeah. Cheers, buddy. Congrats. I guess this is the first time. Do we see each other for the first time since we each had a little one? Not, yeah, this is the first time, well, seeing, but yeah. Yeah, got my best dad ever glass while I'm drinking at noon while my wife takes care of the newborn girl. <laughs> yeah. Super questionable best dad ever. Yeah. Super yeah. questionable maneuver. Yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome. The research world, we'd call this an unstructured interview. So, <laughs> so it's got like a couple topics, but we're going to try and cover at least for a little bit while we're chatting today. Uh, what you know about concussion, concussion rehabilitation. Um, but I think we'll start actually outside of research. And I'll just, uh, I gave you a little bit of an intro before I sent that to you. Actually sounded pretty good, eh? Wow. Like my wife listened to that intro and went, you sound impressive when Scott introduces you. I know. Which I was kind of, a, I'm like, well, like <laughs> you know all of this stuff. Why are you... Anyways, great intro, Scotty. It's all downhill from here. Thank you. Yeah. So we got to, yeah, we'll get into, we'll get into some of that, into the history, because there's some pretty good stuff 
um, even along your journey in academia, that's pretty uh, interesting, especially as it's, uh, you know, trying to navigate real life and academia. So I guess we'll get started maybe into uh, introduce that, yes, you did play hockey and ended up being quite good at it. So maybe let's uh, start there. When did, uh, when did you get started in hockey? How young were you? Oh, God. Um, I think I was first on the ice, like most Canadians, around the age of probably three or four, you know, like your mom or dad gets you out there on skates. I mean, I played hockey since, I think, organized hockey since the time I was five or six. And then um, obviously a little bit more competitively as I got a bit older. But, um, you know, when I was a kid, the I don't know if it's still called AAA, but and I actually, I don't even know what the names of the groups are called anymore. I don't think it was called Pee Wee and Benton and Midget, but I think they've gone away from those names. So, um, yeah, I played at a reasonably high level, but I'm from New Brunswick, so there aren't that many people there. So that probably takes away a bit of the uh, aura around AAA hockey. But, um, yeah, from there, I, when I was playing um, my last year, of midget hockey, I got an offer. I got offered a full scholarship to go play in the in the NCAA in in the U.S. Division One, which was awesome. Um, but that was contingent upon me playing here junior hockey in Ontario. Yeah. So um, from New Brunswick, I guess I was 16 at the time. I moved away from my grade 12 year, played hockey in Ontario. Um, switched high schools which is also interesting right like that's a interesting time of your life to be switching up high schools uh, but anyways uh, from there uh, played a year junior we had a really good team um, didn't win nationals but we got to the semifinal which was kind of cool and then I then I basically just played for losing teams like then it was like all downhill from there I played at Merrimack College we were brutal um, I think my first year we were we, we squeaked into playoffs. We played a pretty good team in Maine. They had Jimmy Howard who played in the NHL and Dustin Penner, two guys that anyone's listening and you want to elite prospects or hockey DB, they were good players. Uh, they, they swept us. And then the second year, I think we won one game out of 24. Uh, so <laughs> around that time I, I left, uh, I left Merrimack college. I also got a tryout, as you mentioned in that amazing intro. Um, uh, got a try on the National Hockey League. So that was a cool week because <laughs> it didn't last any longer than that. Yeah. Uh, back to junior, major junior hockey in St. John. Um, had a really good experience there, great time there. And then uh, off to back to university. So St. FX for three years. And then, uh, as you mentioned, got an opportunity to do a master's. So that was awesome. And that's where we met. So I think we're, we're up to date now, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm actually gonna pull you back into juniors. So, uh, what some of you don't know, Jeff was a D man, right? Um, and he was tasked with guarding Crosby, right? So I, so, um, not in junior. Uh, so I grew up in New Brunswick and, and Crosby grew up in Nova Scotia. So this is when we were, um, it was called midget at the time. Yeah. I was a 16 year old. He was a 14 year old and we played in um, the Atlantic championships against one, but I, because he was so good, right. I'm born in 85. Crosby's born in 87. He played yeah. up two years. So uh, just for sake of context, he was very little and very young and we were much older. And um, yeah, so my job was at every age group was to try and stop this kid 
Um, never with any success. My greatest story is I won MVP of our um, of a game played against him. So each team was given like an MVP of the game. And I was MVP for our team and I was minus three. Um, but I played well against Crosby. Yeah. He had like a goal and three assists or something. But I, I got a player of the game somehow out of that. Um, but not in junior. No, that was back uh, before that time. Yeah. Okay. 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 I was going to ask you, like, what was a legit number that your coach would be proud of you guarding him? I mean, I, I, I guess if you can contain him. <laughs> well, if MVP is minus three. Yeah, MVP was minus three. So uh, <laughs> I guess if you can hold him to, you know, just a couple points, like maybe not six goals, that yeah, would be good. So, yeah, I guess he ended up with a goal and three assists. And funny enough – it's such a small world in the hockey world. My um, my roommate at St. FX was actually the MVP for his team. He was on Crosby's line in that game. Yeah, he had the three goals from Crosby's three assists, which oh, nice, is nice, just nice. such a small world. And um, yeah, so but that wasn't any fun playing with that guy. So the second second hockey story I want to call out because not many researchers are going to have this, but you actually have a stick in the Hockey Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yes, good call. Um, so I scored the first goal for the St. John Sea Dogs, and um, um, probably the uh, the best part of that story is it's a wooden stick. So the first goal. So this is in two thousand and five. Uh, so St. John Sea Dogs were an expansion team, obviously, and um, yeah, I just remember before before the game, uh, somebody came in and said, "Oh, for for whoever." whichever one of you scores the first goal, you got to give us our, you got to give us your stick and your gloves because it's going to go in the, the hockey hall of fame. And, you know, just joking. It was our equipment manager who said it. Yeah. I was like, oh, do you want to just take it now? And I mean, whatever. It just, it, it is a funny anecdote though, that, 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 that is a pretty, uh, I've been pretty, you know, good, good history digging up there. Scott. I know I, I've been digging around. I also, you know, Hey, rumors, but uh, heard it was tipped. <laughs> Allegedly, it's not even on video, so uh, whatever. Check the game sheet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome. So, so then you go, you finish up hockey, you get your tryout, you get some offers. Why academia? How did you get into there? Yeah, um, it was my last year at at Saint Effects, so my fifth total year of university, and um, I never really liked school. I was good at it good not like not great but I was good at it I wasn't great at school like I didn't study particularly hard I didn't like school for at least the first three years that I was in university and then uh, I took a sports psychology class uh, during my undergrad as an elective uh, honestly because I thought it would help me with hockey not because mm. I was actually thinking I would get a PhD in that area so I, I got into kinesiology, you know, as a result of liking that sports psychology class and then everything changed for me. I just, I really started enjoying going to school. I like learning about the human body, the way, you know, the different, I mean, everything to do with human movement is just fascinating. And uh, the one area that spoke to me is sports psychology. So in my fifth year, uh, so I, my last, last year at St. Effects, I was looking at what I wanted to do uh, with my life after, after St. Effects and, um, I'd written a paper about concussion and I really like sports psychology. So I Googled sports psychology concussion mm -hmm. and the first hit that came up was Dr. Gordon Bloom at McGill. So 
Um, I, I had an undergrad advisor at that time and she said, well, why don't you just write him an email and see if you can do your master's with him. So I did and he said, well, fly up to meet with me. He didn't pay for it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, I guess how it works. Um, there's some grad like Kels. So those of you who are listening, my wife is also an academic. She's actually now a instructor at the University of Lethbridge as well, but just a rock star. And uh, she was paid to go out to her interviews. <laughs> so, yeah, and uh, and like offered signing bonuses. Yeah, so, not for us plugs. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, we were offered a fourth line position on yeah. whichever <laughs> team would take us. Yeah. So the fun fact here for uh, anyone in uh, sports psych: Jeff and I are the lowest GPAs admitted into Gordon Bloom Sports Psych Lab. So uh, the two lowest are sitting here chatting. Truth. Yeah. True. You would not get into his program today. No, we wouldn't even get a sniff. No, no. we probably wouldn't even be allowed to apply. There'd be some denial on the uh, portal. Yeah. To say, I, no. I still wonder how I got in. I, I finished my undergrad and I had no interest in school. Uh, I thought I was going to make a ton of money and no one wanted to hire me with an undergrad. <laughs> and then, uh, I was like landscaping and doing snow removal and just in the worst, the worst spot in my life. And then I went to the bank one day and one of my old sports I crossed from Sage up. So this is this artificial school in Quebec that bridges um, high school and university. But I had an awesome sports like teacher in, in Sage up one of the only profs I talked to and he saw me in the bank and he asked me how I was doing. And I said, I've hit rock bottom. I'm doing snow <laughs> removal. Uh, you know, making the same money I made when I was 14. Right. <laughs> you know? And then he said, well, have you thought about sports psych? Brought me into his office. And he was at the time working with GSP, so the the fighter. Oh, yeah. 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 So he's got all these notes, like, from GSP. And I think he was working with uh, maybe Carey Price as well. But he's got all these signed photos. Thanks, Peter. What? And uh, anyways, I'm like, what? You can do this? So I applied, I applied to grad school. And I actually, when I applied, thought it was hard undergrad. Like, I thought it was just classes. I didn't even know there was what research was. Oh, I didn't know there was a thesis. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, classes are harder. So I always stayed in school just because like, if I stayed in school and had decent grades, no one would question my dumb lifestyle choices. So I just went to extend it and then got caught up in it. I think the second episode of your podcast should be me interviewing you. Oh, God. Your yeah. early <laughs> experience. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. For those listening, I guess, uh, Scotty and I, uh, we went to grad school together. So when I was in my second year of my master's, um, I had the the pleasure of welcoming our new recruit, Scott Rathwell, into the the lab. And that was, I think that's like a three-parter podcast just uh, to get through all of that. I feel like we got to wait for tenure. Once we both have tenure, then we can start talking about... uh, pre-university uh, scott i like that yeah let's just park that conversation yeah well, <laughs> a hard a hard stop in the current conversation yeah. so well, one of the i want to highlight too again hockey mixed with uh research jeff actually i don't know how this happened but actually paid for his graduate student uh studies uh playing hockey out east yeah, this isn't a good idea, and I wouldn't recommend that anyone do this. Um, wow. So, I don't know if this is still going on, but 
at the time, so this is in what, Scotty, like 2012, 2013? Yeah. Um, I was doing my PhD in Montreal. And on the weekends, I was playing semi-professional hockey in Newfoundland. How that all works is unbelievable. So I would get on a flight, all paid for by the team in Newfoundland. I would get on a flight Thursday night, get there late Thursday evening in St. John's, stay the night there, wake up Friday, drive two hours to this, what, two hours west of St. John's uh, to this place called Clarenville. And we would, and I'm putting air quotes around the word practice Friday night because it was, <laughs> it was, I don't even know why we went out. Anyways, we put our gear on and we skated around and then we had a bunch of beers uh, Friday night. And then we played games Saturday, Sunday. And then I would fly back to Montreal Monday morning. Uh, my now wife, my then girlfriend would pick me up at the airport, reeking like booze. And she would drop me off at school and I would do it. I would, I would just, I work on my PhD from Monday to Thursday and then go back to playing hockey on the weekends. It was ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, then you got deep into the concussion research and started <laughs> going, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if this is exactly the best idea for yeah. somebody researching concussions to be playing a high risk sport, but yeah. Just imagine if you got taken out, eh? Oh, kind of end the career, yeah. I mean, that, that's the worst, and that's actually some of what I'm interested in now is the idea of um, fears around injuries, and I know you're interested in that as well. But I was scared to death at that stage of my life to not just a concussion, but get hurt in general. That would either leave me immobilized, like. You know, not I'm not talking about permanently, but you know, break your arm or leg. And in Montreal, you walk everywhere. Oh yeah. So yeah. I'm just thinking, like, what if this is winter and I break my ankle or something playing hockey? Or if I become the most ironic concussion researcher ever and get a concussion while in grad school, like playing hockey. <laughs> not a good idea. So if you're thinking of doing grad school, don't be like me because it, it honestly, I I got through it, but it it was not a good idea. Hmm. Um, that part of it but, but you know once the season was over i was like all right that's enough good story you know scott got his hat out of it i still have that hat i love that <laughs> hat. It's back to back champions yeah. herder cup champions yeah we got some screech out of it some newfoundland uh rum i guess yeah yeah that's not a good idea folks yeah so uh so in grad school you actually had uh i would say one of my favorite of your studies was your master's thesis. So that's very rare <laughs> at this point to actually look back and say, hey, one of the best ever. So it's kind of sad actually saying like, oh my God, <laughs> no, you can't stop you that. Did. Yeah, mine, yeah, I'm not a saint, but <laughs> yeah, your first one was unreal. So maybe uh, fill, uh, fill in the audience on what you did. Yeah. Um, so, uh, my, my own experience as a hockey player and, and having some concussions, I, I, I was very interested in studying concussion and uh, I get to McGill and uh, Gordon Bloom and I start talking about what I might study. And uh, he had a very close colleague or has a very close colleague, Dr. Karen Johnston. Um, she's a medical doctor who's worked with everyone. If you look at any of the consensus statements, especially the early ones, her name's all over it. And 
uh, just a wonderful woman, tremendous scholar and like tremendous clinician. And she had a lot of contacts with former NHL players who had um, persistent concussion symptoms. So together they kind of decided, well, we could do some type of research with these men. Um, and Gordon kind of shoulder tapped me to do that work. So that was the study. I, I, I sat down with five former National Hockey League players and, and we spoke about their, not just kind of their careers. That was interesting, obviously for me, somebody who's interested in hockey, but um, what this injury did to them, not only physically with the types of symptoms they encountered, um, like headaches, dizziness, that stuff, but also very wild psychological symptoms like suicidal feelings that, you know one guy spoke very openly about having suicidal thoughts uh symptoms of paranoia anxiety uh, feelings of isolation and then there was also the social ramifications like whether it's their identity mm -hmm. um, these men lost their identity so that you know what you know one of the guys who's very high profile said like one day you're an NHL player, the next day you don't want to leave your house, you can't shave, you don't want to do anything. You're just, you're very, you're depressed. And that one always stuck with me. So the identity piece, but then also their, their relationships with their spouses, their partners, for some of them, it just deteriorated. Um, one of the men talked about, you know, wanting to get a divorce or not wanting to get a divorce. His wife said, I can't live with you like this. And yeah. you know, he credited his concussions to that. So there's, then their careers were altered, you know, then they have these long, like persistent symptoms that, that they felt inhibited them from getting other work. Uh, so really, really just, just blew my mind, honestly, that study, just being involved in that. I couldn't, I was just very lucky to be involved and in, to be put in that position to, to hear their stories. And uh, yeah, I left a big mark on it. Sure. I remember I was in the lab, so I was a year behind Jeff and I was, uh, I guess the rookie, right? So the rookie gets, um the unfortunate jobs in the lab so i was trans i got to transcribe that study nice. so um usually transcribing sucks it's the worst thing in the whole world so you listen you put on your headphones and you listen to both people and you write every single word that they say you make little notes about like intonations uh you're writing down the conversation yeah. it takes what would you say? How, how, how fast did you get? At first it was like torture. I think the fastest I got was I could do an hour and 10 minutes. No, that's really fast. No, 10 minutes in an hour. Sorry. Yeah. 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 10 minutes of audio in one in hour. hour. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fast. Yeah. Um, I would say that it's normal for people to type like five minutes of audio for an hour. So yeah. All these conversations were 60 minutes to 90 minutes, depending on the, the time that the men could, could. So this one for me was fun because these are, these are like my heroes growing up and I'm listening to them tell stories. Right. And there's the stories that made it into the manuscript, but then there's the stories that just didn't. Right. And I remember one of them, one of the guys was saying he got a concussion in a game and he kind of blacked out. And he sort of came, he came to in the dressing room and he was like, Hey, what's, uh, what period are we in? Like a ah, second or something. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah. uh, what's, what's the score? Two, one for who? Us. Who scored? You, you have both. <laughs> True story. Uh, 
it's amazing what, what these guys went through. And, and I think it's important to note that they played in the majority of their careers in the 90s and early 2000s when so yeah. the 1990s and the early 2000s when uh, concussions were definitely people were aware. Some people were aware of them, but it's not like today. It's not like uh, yeah. nothing like today. I guess date is important. Anyone listening, today is July 31st, 2020. So if Jeff and I are way off the cuff, you're listening to this in five years and you're what did they even know? Yeah. Okay. Just know. Yeah. Just know we're talking about concussion in this time frame, right? So it's better than it was, but I'm sure, you know, we're kind of breaking through. There's a ton of research happening now in concussion. So from now moving forward, whatever we know and say right now may not be true or be less true uh, in the next couple of years. What is truth? What yeah. is truth anyway? <laughs> social constructivist Never, another 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 podcast yeah. yeah yeah so you you did your master's you did your phd at uh mcgill you stayed in concussion research um then you did a postdoc and you sort of jumped ship a little bit hmm. what did you what did you get into what did, what did you start studying yeah so um i was I think I was like a lot of people who finish their PhD and they think that, or I, I guess I knew by that point, but you get into your PhD and think, Oh, well, I guess I'll be a professor then. Mm. You don't, you don't really know how to do that or what's involved. Yeah. So I came to find out very quickly that you'd have a whack of publications and a whack of research experience. Um, so near the end of my PhD, even though I had been applying for postdoctoral funding, which is uh, Canada has Canada is one of the luckier uh, countries in the world. We offer a lot of scholarship opportunities for graduate students and, and scholars to do research, um, but they're still very competitive. And mm -hmm. I, I was never successful in, in getting funding during my my doctoral work or my to get funding for my postdoc, which meant that I, I was in the, the position success rate in postdoc is like fourteen percent or something. Yeah, well, I was then to get an IDG. What's that? I said it's hard, like statistically, it's harder to get postdoc funding than it is to get an insight development grant. So the yeah. they have early career researcher grants um, offered for professors, and I think the success rate there is around thirty, which is nice. Much higher. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's. I'm not going to say easy, but it, the success no. rate is much better. Yeah. All you have to do is become a professor first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. That's, well, it's really open once you get It's not easier. Yeah. Yeah. Getting the professorship is the hard part. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah so I, I, I had to be opportunistic and I was very fortunate that, um, so at McGill, uh, somebody who had been hired um, while I was a PhD student was Dr. Shane Sweet. And, you know, he, we, he, uh, we co-authored a paper together during my PhD, one of my doctoral studies. And um, I just, he knew in my situation that I, that I needed to get funding because I wanted to continue on in academia. Yeah. Um, but he said, look, I, I have money for you to do this project, um, but it's not at all in your wheelhouse. I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, I need you, I need somebody to develop a questionnaire uh, in the field of uh, individuals who have suffered physical disabilities. And I was like, 
well, that's perfect because I don't know anything about questionnaires and yeah. I don't know anything about uh, in, like research on people yeah. with physical disabilities. So, so yeah, this, so I guess I'm going to interrupt here. So as a, and I, maybe I'll get your opinion on it, but I think that's the best thing that ever could happen. Like a postdoc, you should not do the same thing, but more of it. You should go out and learn a skill or go out and learn a new area of research. Yeah. Now it's harder, right? Because then you have that lag in publication, but I think that benefits you. So I, it's not that I disagree. I just think I probably shouldn't have. So I switched like methodology and research. Yes. Think, so that's, you should do probably one to be efficient. I think, yeah, yeah. I think probably the safe bet would be to do one of those things. So yeah. I think I'm with you, like study a different topic, but maybe develop the types of, uh, methodological skills that you can continue using to study that topic, which I ended up doing during my postdoc. Like I did some, some qualitative work um, with this population, but to give you a, yeah. you've created a questionnaire, right? Oh yeah. That's my, that's my jam. I've right. got a bunch, I've got well, a couple of them now, <laughs> but psychometrics and survey development is horrible. That is not my jam and not, and it is horrible. Like, well, when, I, I say that, but I actually love it. Well, I, I love doing it, but the the publishing process sucks because everyone gets in this contest on who's better at stats, and you're just sitting there, and you're, you know, as a you get your review comments, and like this new technique came out yesterday. Have you tried that? Like, no, it didn't exist. Okay, so it's a rough game. You get beat up in it. It's not fun. You always have to be learning new stats knowledge and like you have to be deep in the dark web like there's no book like i go on se sem.net and i'm in like the dark web of statistics chatting with i don't know who <laughs> trying to figure out how to do these things so so your wife wakes up in the middle of the night and wonders what you're up to and you're in you're in the dark web and did i oh, tell you that story? stats this isn't a big deal did i tell you that story what so I had a stats comment. I was asked to do Bayesian uh, modeling. Like I'd done exploratory structural equation modeling. They asked me to do Bayesian. And I'm like, oh man, I don't know how to do Bayesian, right? So I'm trying to learn it. I can't figure it out because people who write about stats, again, I feel like just want to show how smart they are. And they'll write, you know, obviously if X plus Y to the power of Z equals 2X four Z, then BX will be BZ times six. And you're like, what? Like, what does this mean? So like, no one will tell you how to do it in a normal way, right? So I'm trying to figure it out. I'm reading all these papers. I can't grasp it. I'm like, I might have, it's a reviewer comment. I'm like, I'm, I might have to ditch this one. I'm going to fail, right? And then I go to sleep, right? I go to sleep and in my dream, I go to my office. Kids, and, don't do a PhD. God, this and, is what happens to you. And then I open up my code, right? And I'm sitting there, I'm looking at the code and I'm like having this outer body experience, right? So I'm there coaching Dream Scott how to code Bayesian statistics, right? So in my dream, I go, listen, Scott, you have no idea how to code this. But... What I did have was I had a script. So someone had code they'd use. I said, you don't know what those mean, but you know there's a coder behind that. 
and you know what it's like to be a coder. So as a coder, you leave, like you do things for a reason to make it easier for you and so that you don't make mistakes. So like when there's an enter in the code, it's purposeful, right? right. So then I'm like, read for purposeful, just like things that don't make sense and then figure it out, figure out the coder, not the code. And then I'm like, okay, there's an enter here. So that has to be a reason. So then I count the things. I'm like, oh, okay. So those have to be the loadings, right? And then, and then like I, same thing. And I'm like, I count how many there are. I'm like, oh, those have to be error covariances. And then I figured it out in my dream, right? And then I wake up and I'm like, no way. So like normally in a dream, like, I'm playing hockey and then I like have, you know, jets on my skates and I can do moves I can't. Right. So I'm, th I'm thinking I'm going to walk to this room, open up the code and be like, nope, dreams got like, that's not a real thing. I open it up. It's the same code. And then it all applied. And I knew how to do Bayesian statistics. I figured it out based on the code. Then once I knew the code, I could read the papers. You poor so guy. Can you how much your dreams have changed in 10 years? I'm sitting on the computer coding and I'm butt naked, right? Because I just got out of bed. Kelsey, <laughs> Kelsey wakes up because I'm not in bed, comes down the hallway, sees me naked on the computer at like one in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, she's like, no, you know, like a normal I wife. Come to one conclusion, what you're up to at that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's well, she said a normal wife would think that you're on the computer doing that, but my nerd of a husband is coding Bayesian statistics. Like the only time you can be disappointed in your husband is <laughs> not doing what you think they're. Yeah, doing. more than that. <laughs> yeah. I told my old supervisor the alternative in this case. I told my old supervisor Brad and his wife heard it. And she's like, yeah, that's PhD porn. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> just as bad. Yeah, oh, yeah. Still so. detrimental to the relationship, just in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. So where were <laughs> digress. We went on a tangent there. Where were we? Oh, you got into survey development. Yeah. And I wouldn't say that, you know what though? Like, and, and you were right that it was a really neat to jump ship and do to look at a different area of research and, and use different methods that I've never used before. Because now when people, now I'm just reading papers completely different. So could I, could I lead a paper to develop a measure today? No, I would not feel comfortable doing that. But when I read papers and when I look at other people doing any type of research, especially quantitative, and I look at the way in which they describe the measures, oh, we just took a composite score for yeah. this scale, whatever. I find that offensive. Having been the guy who created a measure, like knowing yeah. what goes into it, all of the different statistical tests. And like, at this point, I should give a huge shout out to like Meredith and Meredith Rocky and Shane, Dr. Meredith. Dr. Rocky. Meredith Rocky, University of Ottawa. Probably yeah. smart, like one of the smartest stats minds. Ever. Good Lord. Like without them, this, the whole thing doesn't happen because they were my, uh, Anyways, they basically, they taught me everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, wow. Um, so that was, that was really cool. So while I'm working on those projects with Dr. Shane Sweet, um, Lindsay Duncan, Dr. Lindsay Duncan, who shares a lab with Dr. Shane Sweet at McGill, she said, hey, Jeff, I'm writing this grant that we're not going to get um, for the International Olympic Committee. I'm going to create a video game. And I was like, awesome. That's fantastical and not going to happen. Yeah. I'll help you. I'll write a, she asked me to write, Scott, like this little, little part. 
Yeah. She's like, we want to do some qualitative stuff. And I was like, it was pretty short notice. She said, like, if you can do this this afternoon, you're on the grant. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, so I guess the lesson here is shoot your shot. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I just made time. I was obviously probably doing something else, whether it's well, personal, it's social. brought you in because it's not just the one way street where it's tough to do the quantitative. Like, you can't walk out of quantitative and be great at qualitative. So I started yeah. qualitative and then like now I'm rusty. So when like I brought you on my grad students project because I'm just not there anymore. So, well, I mean, I think the further and further you get into anything, like you just talked about survey development and all the advanced stats that you do, like that's well beyond what I understand, but it's because you specialized in it much like I specialize in the qual stuff now, like, course if i specialize in it, i hope i know more than you after kind of leaving that area for a bit yeah um but yeah anyways Lindsay invited me i'm calling her Lindsay, but Dr. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um Lindsay would be but, okay with being Lindsay. <laughs> yeah but um invited me on the grant and she got the grant and it was about a million bucks which is unheard of for somebody in the postdoc to be a co-investigator on a million dollar grant so part of this grant was that I would be the postdoc uh, responsible for the project, which was developing a video game. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about video games, but it was developing a video game about doping in sport, yeah. specifically creating some type of game where young adolescents could learn about what are situations that are risk factors to start doping. So taking substances or supplements or something like that. So because I don't know anything about video games, Lindsay's collaborators at Yale University, that's what they do. They develop video games. So Lindsay actually sent me down there for a year to work in their lab, which was mind blowing. Like what goes on at at Yale University in general, like the people that roll through there on a daily basis is just absolutely wild. But um, in their space, just seeing what they do with video games, like that group down there at Yale, they're into like, HIV research, uh, vaping, smoking. Uh, so they're in their research. They're like gamifying decision making, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and trying to one of the ways that they they so that their group is called Play to Prevent. Uh, that's the Play to Prevent lab down at Yale, and um, Dr. Uh, Lynn Feline is the the director of that lab, and Dr. Uh, Kim Hyphy. I always have a hard time with their names. You should see their names spelled. It's, yeah. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you look at the names and then you actually say them, it's very different. Well, you remember um, Lughead? <laughs> um, but all to say, they, one of the things that they preach in their lab is we want to create a safe space, virtual space, for, for young people to make bad decisions yeah. and learn from them without actually having to do it in real life. So. Mm-hmm that hooked me. I thought that was so, so neat. And, um, we just actually finished in January of 2020 developing the game. Yeah. So got the grant in 2017. It took all that time to develop the game. So where is it being played? Where is it disseminated? So we were rolling out our RCT in February of 2020. Okay. okay. So you're still researching that. And for those of you who don't know what happened in March of 2020, there was a global <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> so, so that's really good for research. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's perfect. So, 
for for obvious reasons that was put on pause but um yeah you know the game's played on ipads it's a two-dimensional game and uh lots of survey-based data some some interviews and mm. uh the hope is that we are able to collect enough data to pres- like publish a series of papers eventually yeah, yeah nice so so all told like my my experience is uh i guess broader than i usually let on but mm. um interested in doping i'm interested in concussion stuff i'm interested in coaching and leadership stuff because you know like like your stuff scotty and in your masters and um i guess in your phd coaching leadership and then um yeah there's doping stuff and and i'm ashamed that people with physical disabilities that's that's cool too so i got to highlight here jeff and i have kind of lived on the same timeline like we got married what two months apart yep yep we had kids 10 or 14 days apart. First kids, he has a little boy. I have a little man, but it worked out that way. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, we, we've been telling each other. <laughs> you got to propose. So. You skipped all the postdoc stuff, went straight to the job, which I, I did, wish I yeah. would have learned that lesson. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, but I kind of cheated. So like what I did was I got funding in year three of my PhD and it was, and they gave me it for three years. So you're three, four, and like, if you're fast, you can do a PhD in four years. Usually it's four to six, like on average, five being sort of the landing point in our field, at least. Um, So what I did was I finished my PhD by year four. I printed it and put it on my desk. And then I just, I pretended I had a postdoc for a year. And actually PhD funding is way better than postdoc. So I was being paid more than a postdoc doing a postdoc. I had an awesome opportunity with uh, Dr. Bettina Callery out at uh, Cape Breton University. So she'd won a grant and we were doing some cool work. So I had like this second field on coaching master's athletes. It was completely um, independent of what I was doing for my PhD. So then I, and like no one counts your years of PhD. So when I applied, they're like, holy crap, look how productive this PhD student is, right? Right. I wasn't really a PhD student. I was a fake postdoc. Yeah. Which is good for everyone. It's great for you, like you said, financially, but um, it's just the security, right? To have that funding and, and to be able to work on other stuff. Yeah. So you were, you were really, I'm not going to say fortunate because you make your breaks, but you nailed it. The timing and everything like you. Well, that was yeah. it. The timing, I fell into something amazing, like a great project that had legs, were an aging population, highly fundable. But a job advert that actually fits you? Oh, yeah. yeah. In was, that time frame? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it came out on Kelsey's birthday, actually. We were driving. Wasn't it around um, Accepts? We were, we were there. So That's we were when I got, a- yeah, when I found out I got an interview. Yeah. Right. I remember that because... You know, you'd applied and you said like, well, whatever, you know, I'm upon, I was leaving academia. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You should tell that actually. Yeah. That story. Well, you were on your way out. You said, I've had enough of this. So I won't, I won't name names, but I applied to a couple of postdocs. And one supervisor was unreal. Amazing guy told me, uh, you know, like, listen, I don't have a grant right now. I usually win grants. If I do, here's what you'd be paid. Here's what I can guarantee you, whatever. But he said, you should look for someone who has guaranteed funding, right? So I had an interview with the second person who had it. And so I said, I got to hedge my bet. Like, 
I didn't have a lot of money. I'm a rare uh, PhD, you know, doctor who didn't come from money, um, or at least any money, and uh, paid for a lot. <laughs> yeah. So it was all on me. It was on loans. It was a starving, uh, <laughs> legitimate starving student. And then, uh, so I said, I'm, I, I'm never doing academia if I'm not being paid for it anymore. So then I went, and so it's not just the money. Like he had really good research going on. I respect what he was doing. He said, listen, I've guaranteed funding. This is, if you come with me, this is what I'll give you. But we should apply, like, I think your ideas are good and I think we can get postdoc funding as well. So I came close. Uh, I went out for banting. I was strangely rated higher for banting than sure, um, which is odd. Um, didn't make it. I send him a message. Hey, unfortunately, I didn't get uh, funding. I'm looking at places, right? I'm going to buy a car. I'm going to, right? And I say, I didn't get it. Um, you know, still looking forward to working with you. As soon as he finds out I don't have funding or I didn't win. Hey, sorry, man. Uh, I've allocated that money elsewhere. So now I've, like, I applied to him a year before, at least, right? So then... Um, now I'm the guy who's like, like applying to people last minute, looking like I'm not organized, right? So with no money, no career. So then this job comes up. It was literally described me. And I said, I'm going to take one swing at it. And if I don't get this job, I'm out, which is wild. Because no one get like, you don't get. Your first ones to learn how to do it. I got super lucky, got the job. So that was a wild one. Well, I... Uh, um, yeah, th th that experience is not common in academia. The one where um, a postdoc opportunity falls through like that, typically that is, that's very rare. I haven't heard too much of that, but. Unfortunately, no. I have. Really? I saw it the same year happen to my buddy. So I guess it speaks to the importance of having things in writing. And yeah, have things in So I didn't get it. I had it, I might have, I actually think I have an email in writing, but, but it's not a signed contract. So sign your contracts, make sure you get a contract would be yeah. one. Um, Cause yeah, it happened to me and my buddy at this, both of us we were same school happened to us in the same year. So and, you got unfortunately, to, in the bank to celebrate because yeah, uh, until it's, until it's uh, you see it written in front of you or yeah. money in the bank, it doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. So that's, that's caution to people going into uh, academia. And I was going to say the other thing too, you really sold yourself short there on the application interview thing, because I remember, well, when I got my job, you tutored me on how to interview for my job. Yeah. You really sold out. Like you spent, I mean, when you do your PhD, you do a comprehensive exam and it's one of yeah. the hardest things I've ever had to do but you, you essentially spend a very concentrated amount of time studying for, to become a PhD candidate. Yeah. That's essentially what the interview was. Oh you yeah. Everything about the university. I think I put 400 hours into my application. Oh yeah. 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 Cause it was my, it was my hail Mary. Like, I was gone. I was done. So I'm on, I'm, I'm putting it all in line, but. Yeah. Very lucky. You put in a lot of work. A lot of work that ended up helping me out get my job. Yeah, it's been a good it's been a good strategy. I actually learned a lot from uh, Mike Carter, so Dr. Mm -hmm. Carter at uh, McMaster. So he's kind of started the trend. I learned a lot from him. 
Um, Shane Sweet was really helpful too. So then I just asked everyone around and then it's been sort of a winning, uh, well, the winning success story is, hey, tell everyone to work like it's your last job, like your last opportunity. But you got it. Meredith got it. I got it. Corliss got it. Mike got it. Oh, I didn't know Corliss got a job. Oh, yeah. She's at Ottawa. Uh, no, she's at Brock. Yeah, she's at Brock. Oh, she got that Brock job, yeah. eh? Yeah. yeah. So, oh, good for actually her. Actually, a different one. So she's connected in the same school, but not in kinesiology. She's in like slipping me, but she's doing like what she likes doing program valuation. So awesome. Oh, good yeah. for her. There's a, she's a she monster. Her on. Yeah, I know. Actually I should. Yeah. She's a freak. <laughs> so we'll come back now. Actually, one of the things you went to Yale you moved, right? You moved down to the States. Yep. Greasy move though. What's he do first? You got engaged, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. locked it down, and then yeah. moved to a different country <laughs> with no known return date. Got, a, got engaged, uh, went to my brother's wedding in Scotland, yeah. bought a car before we went to Scotland, yeah. let it sit at home, flew to Scotland back, get in the car, pack up, move to Yale. remember emily so jeff we get engaged you're going to move to another country with no known return date a little bit selfish <laughs> it wasn't a popular move uh, <laughs> it wasn't a popular move i should say that, that awesome. um but you know when you, you do this stuff your partner has to be understanding yeah. and yours no, yours no. your case is easier because you're wife is an academic and yeah. I also wanted that. Well, they told us actually when they, when I started my PhD program, we had a class that was kind of like how to be an academic for dummies. And they said, number one rule, don't date another academic. And if you do most certainly don't date someone in your same field because you will never work in the same city for your whole life. So then obviously I marry someone who I met three doors down. Luckily we actually both have positions at university, but that's because Kels like Kels could walk into any school and get any position. I was fortunately just a bit older because I probably wouldn't do the same. And uh, yeah, yeah, you guys are very lucky. The fact that, I mean, you got your job, but then. Yeah. Yeah. We're three doors down now at the university. Well, technically we work from here now, but yeah. work in the Boston dome here. So now we'll talk, I guess we'll actually get into the topic of discussion. So uh, I actually wanted you to uh, cover or just explain sort of the basics on concussion rehabilitation and sort of the RTP uh, return to play protocol. So um, I guess before talking about the rehabilitation uh, in, in brackets, I'll talk about uh, what Air quotes concussion if, is. If you're yeah. not listening or not watching the video. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. But a, a concussion is a brain injury. Um, it's a brain injury that it's, there's so much uncertainty with this injury, and it's such a subjective experience. Um, no two athletes have the no two people have the same concussion experience. Um, it's worsened by things like if you have a history of the injury, if you have uh, pre existing conditions like 
perhaps attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, learning, dis uh, learning disabilities. Those things can make your concussion experience different and at times more severe. Children have different experiences than adults. Men have different experiences than women. So if you get a concussion right now, there's no one that can look you in the eye, you know, July 31st, 2020 and say, this will last 14 days. Here's what you do to get better. Unfortunately, it's a lot of, I'm talking to the guy who had a concussion during his PhD. I guess I'll ask you, have you had any yourself? Like how, yeah. Not since I've been studying them as a researcher, but I had a bunch when I was younger. Were they long, any long-term or mostly short? I don't know, because we never sat out. We never, we never stopped doing stuff. Yeah. It was just like, oh, that's annoying. Like, I'm throwing up a little bit today. I wonder what that is. Must have ate I, something weird. I had this one student, uh, Gavin Broadhead, and uh, he told me basically he got concussed in, oh, I can't remember where he played. Let me look him up. Gavin. This is actually a nice thing about uh, doing this. Gavin Broadhead, Hockey DP. I'll leave it. There we go. Let's take a look here. WHL. Oh, disable head blocker. Come on. <laughs> it's blocking it. Anyway, he's played in the WHL. Can't remember which team. Yeah. So he got, he was a skilled guy, got concussed early on and then just played his entire career concussed and then i saw this kid he would come out and skate so i i coached a senior team actually in the last two years and he'd come out to our practices but he had too many concussions and the kid was so skilled and he was telling me just like once i've recovered uh like i could do things that i knew i could do but before it was just a haze so it's it's uh yeah, back in the old times. And old times aren't even that long ago. No. No, no like I, I stopped playing hockey at university in 2009. And even at that point, we knew what concussions were, but no one took it. No one, meaning the athletes, took it seriously. Yeah. Now I think there's a lot more awareness. I think athletes are a lot more in tune with stuff. But I have a lot to say about concussions. But, yeah, anyways, your question was concussion. So it's a very, you know – and, and, and the other thing about concussions right now in the media and, and popular media anyways is there's a lot of sensational or sensationalization with what it is and what it isn't. So yeah. in the United States, uh, researchers, well, re United States and Canada, um, so Boston University and let's say Western University, those are two schools that really focus on chronic traumatic encephalopathy. That's the mm. neurodegenerative brain disease that – former NFL players, former NHL players, uh, boxers have been diagnosed with once they were dead. So many of you would probably hear CET. CTE. CTE. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. CTE. And in CTE, um, what, what researchers are doing now, because they don't have prospective data, meaning yeah. like as these people were alive to record their concussions, they're making a lot of correlational assumptions or they're making causational inferences yeah, based on, on correlational data which is kids don't do it research perspective like one of the first rules you learn yeah yeah like a could cause b or c could cause a and b and these people live hard lives a lot of them yeah yeah a lot of partying a lot of drugs a lot of alcohol a lot of other sources that could be causing these things 
Yeah. There, listen, there's tons of things that it could be. Um, but I mean, it's, it's fair to say that if you bang your head enough, it's associated right. with these long-term cognitive problems, which are bad. Um, so that's concussion. I mean, there's a million other things that I could say, but you, you asked about the re rehabilitation. So the process through which that, that athletes return to sport right now is after diagnosis, but done by in the United States, I believe it has to be a medical doctor or a nurse practitioner. I think that's it. Like in Canada, it's a little more liberal. We can have athletic therapists, physiotherapists, and medical professionals diagnose concussion. So once you're diagnosed, you enter what's called, you hear it a lot in sports, the return to play protocol. The protocol is six steps for the most part. Uh, these six steps are not evidence-based. So six steps. Can you steps, explain? Yeah. Can you, you're going to explain. Yeah. Tell us why six steps. It's so, so frustrating when you learn these things as a researcher. It's like, why six steps? Why not seven or two or, or four? Well, there's six days between NFL games. So get a you concussion. Want you, you want your bags steps. of meat to get on the field. Yeah, it's brutal. Um, so you go through these steps, which essentially gradually uh, increase your physical cognitive exertion to the point that you are asymptomatic and functioning at a level that you did before your concussion then you're good to go back to sport. That's, there's, other, there's lots of other rehabilitations that are beginning to come out. I know you've been interested in some of them, Scotty, like when you had your concussion, but uh, like visual, ocular therapies, uh, there's, there's, there's really neat stuff that people are doing with necks. So mm. osteopaths, uh, occupational therapists, chiropractors can treat things that are causing symptoms, but there's no magic bullet to cure concussion. There's no pill. There's no x-ray. There's no. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll go into my story cause it's a wild one. Yeah. So I, I was in my last year of my PhD. This is all when everything was falling apart. I got screwed over or whatever, but I thought I was done. I thought I was done in academia. So um, I was on a boat. We'd been cliff jumping. We were, I was tubing all day. Um, and then the final run i'm at my now wife's uncle's cottage and i'm the safety spotter right so i'm making sure that the girls are on the tube nothing they don't get caught in a rope or i don't know no one gets hurt right boat veers the corner the rope kind of slacks and it was funny too because when it slacked in my head i was like i don't like that right like you have a sense about these things. Yeah. And then the boat shoots forward. Locks on bikes. Yeah. And then it's like a giant elastic, right? So it pulls out, pulls out and snaps. And then it comes flying back into the boat and it has these little rubber balls on the rope so that it will float. And then like, I'm thinking I'm superhuman. I'm going to block it. Right. I had enough time to do this, <laughs> like move a centimeter before but I turned my head enough that it didn't clip me in the eye, but it hit me in the temple. And then the rope went around my face. It broke my nose, slipped me open, slipped my shoulder open and went flying off, slit her uncle's back open. And then like I sat there and I'm like, oh my God, like I'm holding my face, my head's ringing. Um, I remember, well, just watching you and learning your research, I knew quite a bit about concussion at the time, but I, I wasn't really like research interested in it, but I sat there and went, okay, 
the first thing I was cur- like concerned about was, am I blind? Because my eyes were closed. And then I opened my eyes and my eyes, it was blurry. And I went, okay, that's just a little trauma. Like I'll have my vision. That's good. The second thing I said, do I have all my teeth? So I kind of did this, got all my teeth, like two for two. I go, all right, do I know anything about my current situation? So I said, what day are we? I knew it. Who's the prime minister? I knew it. So I'm alert times three. I knew everything. And I went, huh, I guess I got away with this one, right? So my face is all banged up, whatever, icing my face, my head. I ended up partying that night, drinking, whatever. Not a good idea. Go to bed. I drive home for six hours. Not a good idea. Didn't go to the hospital. Nothing. No symptoms, right? And then I wake up 48 hours later and I looked at my screen and it was like burning my brain. So I went, uh, am I hungover? Like, or do I have a, like, I knew I had a concussion, but I'm like, maybe I'm hungover. I'll go to the gym. I'll try and lift some weight. If, uh, if it's like, I put on lightweight and I said, if it feels awful, then I'm concussed. If it feels, it makes me feel better then I'm just hungover. So I pick it up and then the room spinning and it was awful. So I went nine months of recovery on this. So as I'm finishing my PhDs, trying to get a job and I can't look at screens, right? And my job is writing and I can't think or concentrate. So it was a rough one. And then, yeah, I actually by fluke met someone from the London, uh, Western, I guess. What is it? Um, who is it? Eric Lindros funds it, right? Or he put in yeah. a huge donation. So yeah. one of the experts there was there and I had really bad vertigo. So when I w- went on a treadmill or so, the room would flip and the ceiling would be the floor and the floor and the ceiling. And it was the worst feeling. I'd go to walk down the stairs and I'd have to hold on to the railing because the world would flip, right? So he actually got me on a protocol where I retrained my brain, where I was like walking in a straight line, doing like looking left and right, then up and down really fast. And then I'd sit, I'd put my head between my knees and then like pop up as fast as I could. Um, and that was super helpful. Um, and there's, right? yeah. Then there's another thing that was called binocular occlusion. So I look like a total idiot, but you go to the dollar store, I'd pop out the lenses of the glasses and then put tape over here. So the idea behind it is that like if you close your left eye, right? And you put your finger here or here, you can't see yeah. it, right? Right. So your brain sees the world like beyond the halfway point, right? And then it has to blend it. But if you block these two areas, your eyes only see the two halves and it doesn't have to have that computational effort. So I'd put those on and my world would be normal. And I'd take them off and it was a disaster. I couldn't balance. Your brain had to work harder to to focus on on objects that were using both sides or both. Yeah, that would use my full ocular vision. That's interesting. So I don't know, for me, it was just a lifesaver. So I would drive, I would work with these tape, like Hanson glasses, like Hanson, right? You know, it's, it's, what's so interesting about concussion is there's no, 
what researchers are starting to learn now is that there's no one rehabilitation for all concussions. Mm. You have to treat the symptoms and not everyone gets the same symptoms. So you, if you're talking about vision problems or balance yeah. problems, you have yeah. to treat those. Yeah. Like for you, it wouldn't be wise to do, uh, like treating your neck may not have done no, anything. Nothing. I had no, yeah. Versus other people, they don't have what your problems, but they're having these yeah. massive neck problems. And, yeah. and, then it's, and that loosening stuff up in their neck helps them recover quicker. So it's a really complex injury to, to study for sure. So what's, uh, and you actually, it was awesome. Uh, have identified a problem with this rehabilitation process, right? So we're really focusing on the physiological, but what's missing? Um, well, I, I just, from my own experience and now having doing some interviews with athletes and I'm actually doing a study right now trying to figure out the question is, what does it mean to be ready to go back to sport after a concussion? And when, it's funny, whenever you ask health professionals, they go, like, it's such a complex answer. And, and so, okay, so we've, we've talked about the return to play steps and it involves cognitive, physical, physiological exertion to go back to sport. But if ever you've had a concussion or someone told you, okay, you're ready to now go back to sport, well, what about things like fear? What about things like, what's your confidence like? Mm-hmm. What about, are, do, you, do, you, like, do you want to go, are you motivated to go back to sport? What, do you feel like you're ready overall? Of course, a doctor's told you you're ready, but do you believe them? Are you still, have you been honest with that, that medical doctor, that physiotherapist? Have mm. you told them what your symptoms really are? Or are you shaving the numbers down a little yeah. bit? stacking the deck in your favor unfortunately athletes don't work in their best interest a lot of times myself included you would say oh my symptoms are only a three out of ten which is not severe mm-hmm. but really they're more like a six but i don't want to say six because six means i got to sit out longer yeah so if you weren't honest with the health professional and they assess you and they're like well based on everything i have you're you're ready you're ready to go back to sport yeah. But in your mind, you know, you've been lying. So yeah. you're like, well, am I really ready? So that first 50-50 ball puck situation where you're going to be in contact, do you hesitate? Do you go in full blast? Are you, are you anxious? Like competitive anxiety? Are you, do you have re-injury anxiety? Because that, there's, there's research in other types of injuries to suggest if you experience that, you actually put yourself at more risk of suffering, not necessarily concussion, but another injury. That's fascinating. So, so my area of one of my areas of interest right now within concussion is this idea of readiness. What does that mean? And what's involved in being ready to go back to sport? Because I don't think we have a comprehensive understanding of what that means yet. Yeah. So just to, just to double back on some of the things you said, that's that more, you're more likely to get hurt, right? So anyone who hasn't played contact sport, if you try to escape the contact, so in, in research, we call it a fear avoidance behavior. So you're doing something that you're intentionally trying to protect yourself. Um, but anyone who has ever played contact sport, if you try to protect yourself instead of just take the hit and go with it, like if you absorb the hit, um, 
you're going to be way better prepared for it, right? So if you're scared of taking that hit and you try to help yourself not getting hurt, you actually increase the odds of getting hurt. Yeah, and, and maybe the injury isn't another concussion. Maybe the injury is a knee injury. Maybe the injury is a back injury or something because you're contorting your body to try and get out of the way of this collision. Yeah, um, and it's particularly scary with concussion because of second impact syndrome, right? So if you've lied, and maybe I'll get you to explain second impact syndrome. Yeah. Second impact syndrome is when you suffer a second concussion before the symptoms of your first concussion are fully resolved. Um, in Canada, we know this well because of, uh, unfortunately, because of Rowan Stringer. Rowan Stringer was a 17-year-old rugby athlete, um, and she suffered a second concussion before her first one was healed um, in a rugby tournament. And... Unfortunately, she passed away because of second impact syndrome. And it's a very rare, uh, I should state that, it's very rare that you have catastrophic consequences like, unfortunately, um, Rowan Stringer did, but it can happen. So if you're not honest about your, the fact that you've suffered a brain injury, you can have some really bad things happen to you, uh, irreversible things that you just don't want. So there's been a law actually created, the first Canadian law, uh, is Rowan's Law in Ontario, and it's a law about concussions mandating concussion education uh, across sports in the province. Yeah, it's the first province in Canada to do it, but all 50 states have it. Nice. Huh. They love their laws, though, in the U.S. Litigation is their jam. <laughs> so, return to play. Yeah. I was going to ask you, though. So, now we're talking about psychological... And I've been thinking about that psychological safety or psychological readiness to return, right? I was just, I was, I don't know, I think I was on the bike um, and just thinking, again, PhD problems, right? So thinking about psychological readiness, we have this return to play protocol. Um, and there are no aspects, like every measurement aspect of the return to play is physiological. But I wonder if there's, by dumb luck, they have stumbled upon a process that might make people psychologically ready. So where I'm coming from, I'm going to bring this up. Not purposefully, they just, right. Because it's clearly not their, their intention was not there. But when I think about it, so I'm a psych guy, right? So psych trained um, and then got into kinesiology later on in my academic career. But I think of Bandura, right? So Bandura, his social cognitive theory, and he basically kind of cut his teeth in the self-efficacy world doing systematic desensitization. Right? So he would work with people with phobias. And let's say I have a snake phobia, right? I would take, you'd be a psychologist. You'd ask the person, okay, you're afraid of snakes. Like you have this irrational fear of snakes and you'd come together and you'd build this process where you would encounter your fears right so you'd say what's a 10 on 10 like what's the most scary thing about snakes and they'd say well it'd be like holding a snake like put a snake around my neck right and then he would work backwards from that okay so that's the thing you're this would be the worst thing in your entire life let's work backwards right so it might be then like the step before that would be like hold it in your hands. The step before that would be be in a room with the snake, right? 
and like all the way down to like your first step might be trying to imagine a snake right. and seeing a picture of one or something. Yeah. 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 Right. So look at a picture at one and like what you do at these early stages. Now this isn't happening in the return to play protocol, but you actually teach them relaxation techniques. So you mm. do uh, you know, breathing or you would do progressive muscle relaxation where you're squeezing and letting go of your muscles at each stage until that anxiety is gone. So the, I, and I'm wondering whether this return to play by accident taps in for at least some athletes, this systematic desensitization, right? Cause you're building your way towards an eventual return. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I, I think that again, much like the injury itself, it'd have to be tailored to each person. So it wouldn't I think, be the- yeah prescriptive one size fits all unfortunately you know scalable thing that you could just roll out in some beautiful program but yeah well that's the thing so the the difference between real systematic desensitization is done with the person and they decide how many steps they need and what those steps are where like the concussion one is six and they're all the same but maybe you could create some type of meta program to equip uh athletic therapists physiotherapists with like this is what systematic desensitization is here's how it could be applied to athletes returning to sport now again inherently you're assuming that all athletes are, have a fear or a yeah. phobia or something not all do i mean some athletes and this is this is something i find true in sports psychology the, the easiest athletes to work with are the least cognitively reflective people so the people who, for lack of a better term, don't think a whole lot about it. Yeah. Doc said, I'm good. I'm in. That's all there is to it. Versus. Chopping at the bed to get back. Yeah. Yeah. Versus the athlete who thinks a lot about their well-being. They, they, they know they're, they're very aware of their bodies and how they move and how they feel and their different moods throughout the day. Those athletes who think about their long-term job prospects and things like that they they ruminate and they yeah. think and uh, it can it can work to their disadvantage to be honest with you in, in some cases overthinking certain things uh, you see a lot of a lot of athletes reading into some of the media articles saying well these athletes and again this is this is not true but reading into media articles saying well these you know these athletes died because they had concussions mm-hmm. therefore I've had concussions, therefore I will die because of concussions. I'm not going to play sports anymore. Yeah. You can die from playing sports, certainly. You may die from having concussions, but uh, I just feel like there's a lot of people making rash decisions right now based on incomplete evidence. Yeah. You know what isn't a rash decision? Checking out Evo Athletics. Today's episode is brought to you by Evo Athletics, a premier athletic training group. Evo focuses on enhancing sport performance, injury prevention, and skill development. Their goal is to help athletes pursue their best no matter what sport. So don't get left behind. Evolve your game and join the Evo Athletics family. So where did we leave off with what we were talking about? I launched into a tirade about... uh... Dumb athletes are essentially easier, to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it is true. It, it's a hundred percent true. Like, yeah, 
if you just if someone says you're ready and you think you're ready you know you're ready and you just go yeah okay we'll jump back in so we've talked about the return to play now maybe some of the problems psychological readiness um how are you looking now moving forward what are you looking to do do you have any studies planned i know your master's students doing some pretty cool stuff um maybe you want to share uh yeah i mean yeah yeah i'll share of course um so Scott, you're a committee member on one of my students' projects um, around that idea of readiness. What does it mean to be, I think what he's interested in and, um, is this idea of what is a successful return to sport and what is an unsuccessful return to sport? Um, I don't even know what that means though. Like what, what is it? Anyways, that's a whole thing. But, but around this idea of readiness to go back to sport. So doing some, some, like a series of interviews. I think he's looking at doing like two to three to four interviews with each athlete to really yeah. understand what's going on yeah. um, with them. And I guess in 2020, they'll all be done by zoom or something to that effect. Yeah. The other, the other student is working on um, he's, he's interested in this idea of social support, but what are the interactions what are supportive interactions and what do they look like Yeah. and how are they communicated and then how are they interpreted by the athlete? So, you know, I, I think everyone wants to believe that social support's a good thing, but can it be a bad thing too? Can, do you want people to just leave you alone? Yeah. How do like, are what people is what people says, so somebody says something to you in a socially supportive manner, do you interpret that as being supportive or do you take that as defensive or annoying or so he's looking at studying groups of people. So an athlete and then other members of that they identify as being close to them. So yeah. maybe a coach, maybe a teammate, maybe a roommate, maybe a, a romantic partner. Yeah. You really just kind of understand like what does support look like? Were you supportive do I need support? Because I, I think everyone just says social support. It's like, we need more social support. Yeah, it's like, yeah. But I don't even know what that is. Yeah. Like, I know there's like from the literature, I know there's different types, but how do you do, how do you do social support? Yeah. So I just don't think we have a very good understanding. So he's, he's interested in that. So is he, are they ident like identifying who the supportive agents are? Yeah. So, so the athlete, so the first is to identify an athlete that had um, a yeah. long concussion experience. And then from there, this person is going to do like a mapping activity, like, uh, like drawn, uh, who are the people that were closest yeah, yeah. to you? You know, who was supportive, who wasn't. And then it's like get in contact with those people and, and yeah. kind of do the same activity. Yeah, yeah. My quantitative brain, I'm thinking like, Oh man, that's a wicked social analysis, social network analysis study. But this is like a qualitative version of it, right? You're mapping it out and then going deep into each one. That's exactly. Awesome. Yeah. So you're exactly right. So it's social networking analysis, qualitative. Version. Yeah. Oh, very cool. <laughs> um, one study that we actually, we got to revise and resubmit on, which I'm pumped about at PSE, yeah. which is the first for me because they, uh, as you know, they like the middle finger with, <laughs> um, it's, it's around this idea of social reintegration. Yeah. Um, so with Alex Benson, uh, Dr. Mark Bruner, Dr. Alex Benson at Western, Dr. Mark Bruner at Nipissing University, we looked at this idea of 
social reintegration following a concussion. So what is it what does it look like to reintegrate into the team environment after you get a concussion? So we wanted to look at people who got concussed and went back into the team environment in the same year. So, so interesting. Like I didn't know much about social identity. Um, that's, That's kind of this emerging, it's not an emerging concept, but in our area of sports psychology, it's kind of like this air quotes, new idea. Yeah. And, uh, it's interesting how your social identity shifts and, and changes based on your role on a team. Mm-hmm. So I've gotten kind of into the more group dynamics thing, which I yeah. think is really cool with concussion. Like yeah. I think there's so much you could do and so much to understand with concussions in, in terms of a group dynamics lens. I think that there's a lot we don't understand. And if we understood it better, I think it could help athletes. Yeah. How, so I might have missed it. How are you guys uh, evaluating? Are you doing a quant, qual, or mixed methods, or how, how's that working? So this was a straight qual yeah. study okay. uh, because I just want to understand what are the major concepts that either exist or don't exist. So yeah. it's really just kind of treading water and seeing what's going on. Yeah. So we looked at, uh, I think it was, I know it was three athletes and then a coach and a teammate for each athlete. So we did interviews with each of them and we did like um, – we did a narrative around yeah. each athlete's experience with concussion yeah. and we focused on a different aspect that was novel for them. So the main findings of that work was identity for one athlete was really interesting. Like she got a concussion, then she was shifted to be the team manager. Mm-hmm. So that affected her like relationships with her roommates yeah. who were also her teammates. And then she shifted back to be an athlete on the team when she recovered but she wasn't the same person she was before mm. Her identity was completely, that was the focus of that story. Another athlete's story was around pressure. So the feelings of pressure that this athlete put on herself to return to sport, she was a prominent athlete on the team. She got a concussion. So she put a lot of pressure on herself, but she was also interpreting pressure from those around her. Yeah. Like she, it's not that anyone necessarily said you need to go back to sport now. It's that she interpreted coaches' behaviors, teammates' behaviors as pressure inducing. Like the so little comments, like, oh, I just wish you were like, oh, if you were on, like here, we probably would have won, right? Like, I can't wait for you to get back. Like, and they're usually positive, eh? Yeah. Scott, you're, you're looking great today. Like, you, you came to the rink, you're the, the field, you're looking great. Um, I said rink because you're in a Boston. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you're, you, you know, you're looking great. So you're, you're obviously feeling better. Actually, no, I'm still not feeling good. Oh, oh, that's too bad. We could really use you. Yeah. So those types of comments kind of needle away at people. And the other one was, um, so that was two stories. The third one was, um, this idea of support. So it was kind of the idea from one of my master's students studies was what this athlete wanted what this type of support this athlete wanted was not what he received. But then when you speak to the, the coach and the teammates, they're like, yeah, yeah, but this athlete wasn't doing what they were supposed to. They're playing video games. They're going out drinking. They were partying. Yeah, yeah. So they were giving this athlete a different type of support than he wanted. Mm-hmm. So it's like received versus like wanted versus received support. So it's, it's really interesting. Like, and all of this have a, a, um, an impact on the social dynamics involved in the reintegration to the team environment after you get a concussion. I think 
to my knowledge, I, I don't think anyone's really paying attention to that kind no. of nuance, but I, it's, yeah. it's, I find it interesting. And, and right. I think from there, you can dive into a lot of these group dynamics issues that I think are really prominent with concussions. I think people are still ostracized who have concussions. You, 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 you know, you put them away. You don't want to talk to them. So, mm -hmm. So that's some of the stuff I'm interested. Another one, Scotty. Um, I got a, a really small uh, new new researcher grant to um, to create stories, oh, yeah. behavior change stories. So it's this idea where we're going to go do some qualitative work with athletes to understand athletes, coaches, health professionals to understand mm. situations where athletes are missing concussion education. Yeah, and then from those from their stories integrate behavior change theory to try and create these like short narratives where an athlete would read it, see a situation where they haven't handled a concussion properly and then integrate it within the story, give them skills, tips, tactics, strategies to report their concussion, be more safe or, or whatever. So that's, I mean, I got the grant in April, so it's, yeah. It are you, are you planning kind of to deductively analyze this? based on the behavior change theories? Mike. So this is, so it's the, 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 what I wrote in the grant was the behavior change wheel. Yeah. So the idea would be to look at capability, opportunity, motivation around these stories and then find behavior change techniques that map on with those different components of that framework. Or so what, which framework? Sorry, did I miss that? The behavior change wheel. Okay, yeah. So there's three components within that, yeah. those three? That yeah, three components, and they're all mapped onto um, Susan, Mickey, and colleagues' behavior change taxonomy. Okay. So there's like 80 or 100 different behavior change techniques that you can implement. So it's like implementing those into the stories, like integrating that. So the, the overarching goal is like, why don't we use short narratives? Because I don't think the fact sheets, I don't think the posters, I don't think the the slogans i don't think that's actually doing anything like I, I don't think athletes read that and go like oh if in doubt sit them out yeah, yeah. oh great i will do that as a coach yeah. now well do you want to maybe uh this is a good segue into maybe our well published but failed study that we did <laughs> which one the interventions so are you oh like oh yeah, yeah giving yeah. them information it, it must work if people knew more about it so you're a hundred. Yes. Yeah. I'm like failed. I'm like, I've done a lot of failing, but yeah. what is that? Yeah. You're no, you're exactly right. So, so Scott and I published a paper um, and the, the essence was um, we delivered this intervention at four different time points. And I thought that if I gave high school student athletes knowledge about concussions, yeah. all sorts of different things, four different sessions. So like, Concussion 101, what is it? Uh, what are the long-term implications? Tell them about under-reporting. Talk to them about different equipment and how it doesn't prevent concussions. Talk to them about the psychology of injuries. So I thought, naively, that if I gave them all this information, they would have better attitudes towards concussions at the end of the intervention. Yeah. So I'm putting my hand horizontally across the screen right now. That was their change in attitude. Zero variance, like zero. Like, like, I think it got worse. I think <laughs> we actually equipped them with enough knowledge to make their attitudes worse towards concussions. 
and and instead of being bummed out about that, I thought it was fascinating, yeah. and it's just made me be a lot more critical yeah. of concussion education in general, because knowledge does not translate to changes in attitudes yeah. or changes in behaviors, mm-hmm. and like think more broadly about problems yeah. in our society, about obesity, I've, about smoking, yeah. about physical inactivity, like. When you get into the behavior change stuff, everyone falls for it first. If we just give them more knowledge, they'll do better. And it's never the case. We, so in that study, we showed significant changes in knowledge, but not about it, attitudes or intentions about changing behavior. Like, and remember, you, you interviewed them. Okay, so now you know all this. Would you lie about having a concussion? Well, like in playoffs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so good because we 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 gave them some like standardized surveys at three different time points. I think pre post and then two months post. We did some focus groups about two weeks after the intervention. It was a good study. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was naive, but I think it was necessary for me to go like. That was in your PhD, right? Yeah, that was the the crowning jewel of my PhD. Was like a. The funniest analogy I ever heard about doing a PhD was someone said, I think I read it, I don't know, it was a meme or maybe on some academic site or something. And it said, doing a PhD is like being in a group project with a really bad partner. And that really bad partner was past you. (laughs) Propose this four year study when you know, virtually nothing and then you learn a ton and then you and then like future you has to do this study that shouldn't be like that has all these flaws oh my god yeah that i think i think one of the benefits is i didn't have and i know you didn't either like our supervisors didn't go like here's your project you're welcome for your phd because those ones are typically the ones that win awards and yeah you know people do all sorts of great stuff with Ours, I think, they're much more uh, enriching because you you do it yourself, and, and you ask these basically stupid questions, like <laughs> like or or you just design it so crappy that you're like, why did I do this? Well, you have and such a right. good launching pad for the next one, right? Because you're like, I know all of these things were messed up, so then you have like three years of research afterwards. So like, all I'm going to do is the same thing, but better. Yeah. So basically it's like, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. And, <laughs> and if you look at the literature now, how many studies are, and, and I, like, just Google it. It's crazy. How many studies are looking at knowledge and attitudes of athletes? Yeah. There's, there's a study that comes out every couple weeks, knowledge and attitudes of referees in Italy. It's like, what what do we even what does this tell us you know what like we know that attitudes don't mean anything really like yeah I, they can change so quickly and and attitudes have nothing to do with actual behavior i think the underlying product or cause of that is the whole pu- publish and perish paradigm we're in right so you know that you're going to have a significant relationship between what your intervention and either your attitudes or your intention, but you won't have a significant relationship with actual behavior, which is problematic. 
Yeah, and I, and I mean, like, as a whole, I think, you know, looking at some of the meta-analyses in, like, behavior change interventions, like, if we can predict, like, 15% of the variance in yeah. human behavior, we are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we did it. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible if you're, like, building a bridge or, I don't know. Yeah, I know. Any other field, right? Yeah. yeah. So you don't know pretty much everything else. Yeah. You're telling me that you don't know 85% of why your intervention worked? And like 15% variance is good. Oh, you're that, that, would, that, that would be, you're pumped. Behavior yeah. interventions. But yeah. like in general, you're like, wait, 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 wait. You don't, for 85% sure, you don't know why this worked? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know they did it. And you know 15% of the reason for why they did it is because of what you did. Yeah. So anyways, it's, uh, it's been, so I think part of the amazing thing is every time I read, like I look back at a study I I'd done in the past, because when you, you know, when you're like, you're writing a new paper and you're like, yeah. Oh, well, this is related to, so then you go back and like read some of what you wrote and some of the main findings and you're like, Oh God, like this is horrible. Like why? Why would I ask that question in yeah. that way? Yeah. Anyways, I think that's, I, I don't think I'm alone in that one. No, no one's alone. You get your reviewer comments and you're like, oh, fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. I didn't ask that because uh, I'm not smart. <laughs> so, I didn't ask that because past me is an idiot. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't know anything. Yeah, well, I, I told you I was working on a revise and resubmit and I'm getting these great comments and I'm like, yeah, I should, t I should have totally done that, but I didn't. Yeah. So where does that leave us? Yeah. yeah. So I guess we covered now where, where are you going? Um, I, I'm going to, maybe we're, we're pulling up now on almost what, two hours, right? So I think I'll ask you a couple targeted questions. Um, maybe first one. Who do you like right now? Like who's doing some good stuff in research? Ooh, um, in, in which, uh, like which are we talking in sports psychology in Canada? And you know what? I'm going to leave it open. I was going to stick to concussion, but I, I like part of this is just trying to get people to realize that research is not, uh, for the ivory tower people anyone can do it <laughs> we got us <laughs> we're in there um and then just trying to get people curious about research and so it doesn't necessarily have to be about uh, concussion okay so w within concussion um there's a there's a researcher at the university of washington her name is emily crocious dr emily crocious yeah uh, unbelievable scholar what she's accomplished already in her in her career is already enough for a full professorship in most places. And I think she's had her appointment for like three or four years at university of Washington. She is absolutely incredible. She's, she's done so much work. Uh, I, so I, I think her education is like Princeton and like PhD at Harvard, <laughs> yeah. all of that. And then she did a postdoc in the NCAA. Like she had all the NCAA data. Yeah. She's published like lots of big stuff, but she asks really good questions about social norms, about intentions, about pressure. And she's, 
anyways, her work uh, in the field of concussion, I always, I always pick up one of her papers. And, yeah. And like, oh, this is just outstanding. Um, I, I'm biased, but Dr. Alex Benson at uh, University of Western, he actually got a job in the psych department. He just asked such great questions. And, and he comes from the, the Mark Ice family of, uh, of researchers. And, and, you know, I think it comes from, from great leadership, right? Like yeah. he's, he's an excellent scholar. And Mark it, Ice is one of the best, one of the best in business. Yeah. So it's no surprise that one of his protégés is, is doing great work. But. Well, I remember when we're all coming to the end of our PhDs and postdocs, and there's so few jobs in academia, and everyone's just rooting for Alex Benson to get a job so that you have a chance. <laughs> just praying to God. He yeah, has a job like when, when he got one, everyone just went collectively, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's out of the race. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, he's, he's great, yeah. He's, he's, so he's a group dynamics guy, so group cohesion, but he's interested in not just teams or groups, but also organizations. Yeah. Should give a shout out to Luke, Dr. Luke Martin too at Queens. I'm hoping to have Luke on. Oh, just like a terrific human being. Number one, most important. But then... He came, he came, I think he did a talk at McGill that I went to recently in the last couple of years. And he's been doing some work with the Canadian snowbirds mm-hmm. on like group dynamics stuff. And it just sort of, I want to, that's blew my mind. That's like, a, that's a hope for a podcast episode is talking to him about that research. Unbelievable mm-hmm. stuff. And, and I mean, there's, there's a, there's so many people doing cool stuff and, 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 all over the place but when i think of people who are doing good stuff we're asking good questions like dr emily crocious is amazing in the concussion space kind of in the psychosocial world as well and if you're interested in her work uh, dr christine bow i believe i'm pronouncing her name correctly another one of those harvard ncaa scholars yeah. and she's at Col- the university of colorado now i believe but just another one who just asks these amazing questions and they they're just they're doing good work. And, and in Canada, like I said, Dr. Alex Benson and Dr. Uh, Luke Martin are just, yeah, they're just asking really good questions. Yeah. Nice. And then I guess I'll uh, finish off. No, doesn't have to be academic. You got a book. You got one book you want people to read. You think is, you know, worth the while over the summer. What would you recommend? Great question. Game change. Ken Dryden. Yeah. Um, Ken Dryden is, for those of you who don't know, Ken Dryden was a player for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, he's a goaltender. He was called up from the University of Cornell during playoffs, won a Stanley Cup that year with the Montreal Canadiens. Then he went to the NHL for what would be his rookie year. Then he won the rookie of the year, I believe. So I think he won a Stanley Cup before he won rookie of the year. Wow. He won four Stanley Cups or five, but hold up. That's not enough for Ken Dryden because he took a sabbatical year in the NHL, went back to law school at McGill, did his articling. So he took a year off from the Canadians, did articling, (laughs) back to the NHL and continued playing one like Canada Cups with like the Canada when they played like the Soviet Union. Oh, now he's a lawyer. Then he becomes a politician 
He was also the president of the Toronto Maple Leafs. So he's a senator, I believe, or he was. He was a politician. He was the president of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And now he's an author. And he's very engaged in the concussion research world in this book, Game Change. So he's written one of the best sports books of all time, The Game. Mm. It details a week in the life of the Montreal Canadiens when they were at their heyday. He just uses writing when he was on the Montreal Canadiens in between articling and whatever else he was doing. But so he wrote the game, which is if you want to read a book, but I'll, I'll, I'll plug his book game change because um, it's on concussions and he details the life and, and death of Steve Montador who uh, had CT. Yeah. So pick that book up. I read it in a couple days because it's just, it's a patron. He writes so well and it's so well researched. Like he's just, yeah. Ken Dryden. Awesome. Well, I guess that's a good closure, but uh, just want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, hang out, have a chat. I'll have to have you, uh, find another topic to talk about. So this is the first episode. This is the first ever. So this is the OG. This is the one everyone's going to be talking about. This is it. So now let me ask you this. Yeah. I want this on the record too. Yeah. Did you purposely start low here? Like, did you purposely like <laughs> go for low hanging fruit? Because you're like, well, if it bombs, no one will care. But I can, I can do so much better. Like, you wouldn't <laughs> want to start with like, like you said, you wouldn't want to start with like Luke Martin, or, like, <laughs> big dogs. You want to start with some low hanging fruits? So you know, there's lots of room to grow. Is that it? No, no, no. Just uh. I knew you're doing good stuff and you're a fun guy to talk to and we got a good relationship. It's all love between us. So I think, I, well, I, I think it's a great idea, but I, I also think that it's great that you're showing like the human side of. That's a big part of it. I want to, I just want to break it down because then there's, you know, there's so many people like, well, you and myself, I would never have been typecast to be an academic. Um, I feel like I felt like slipped through the cracks and got in, but not to say anyone, like anyone can do it if they put the effort, right? It's all about working, working hard and getting there. But I don't think I'm the smartest guy in the world. I just was super interested and worked hard. So, well, I mean, I can speak for myself. I know I'm not the smartest guy in the world but I'm interested in stuff and I, yeah. and I, and that's the coolest part of research is just yeah. being interested in getting to answer the questions. Like for me, like we talked about that study that like the study that we, we did together. Yeah. That, that essentially didn't work. Yeah. But you know, when I present, I present that one almost every time I'm asked to, to speak somewhere because yeah, I, it's the best. Well, I learned more from that failure than it had everything gone to plan. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to give these people this inner, this dose of whatever, and they're going to do this better. And they do. And it's like, okay, well then what? Yeah. Can they do even better? Like, no, it's like mine was like a failure. So perfect. There's no growth from finding it. Like, oh, it worked. Okay, solved. See ya. (laughs) Oh, man. And like, just human beings are an interesting like it's just so interesting when you talk about psychology of people. Like, yeah. You're never going to fully understand why people do something. Yeah. Or, for, yeah. or, or why everyone does something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do you see the recent, uh, 
the recent there's a recent study or commentary somewhere in one of the like health psych journals about actually i don't even know if it was health psych it might have just been like pure psych yeah like do we understand foundational things of psychology because they've all been done with weird western educated industrialized democratic weird populations Mm. so have we just been doing really racist research like are all of our like core little psychological theories that we hug like a blanket are they wrong like are they are they do they not apply to everyone well, the same, the same applied with a, a lot of the physiological stuff. It was all done on men. Like the whole grounding was done on men, right? So you're doing these, you know, heart rate stuff. You're doing blood pressure stuff. You're doing all, everything we knew about medical science originally was done on, well, men and like college educated because as you know, like I study university athletes. Why? I think it's important, but I also like the fact that I can just reach in and get participants right and why do psych why do psych profs have such amazing studies because they have like we have psych sonar and they, the students can just get three percent of their grade and do their study so you have yeah. to look with who will do it unfortunately yeah. you can't always get representative populations because people just won't do it that's that's why i think this stuff is so neat and, and the stuff that i like the most is the hardest to do which is you get community buy-in and you help like what, like those partnership development grants. Yeah. Those are the ones that interest me. Like you can actually help people answer a question that they want answered, but you just give them skills yeah. they didn't have before. So they're like, well, we want to start educating our coaches about concussions. Can you just come in and do a seminar? And I'm like, well, like, I don't know if that's the answer. Like, what yeah. do you want here? Like, yeah. well, we want them like to pull a kid off the ice or off the field if they have a brain injury. Well, I can do the whole talk thing, but I don't know if that's the answer. Yeah. We could write a grant or I could write a grant and I could get funding to come in and do this properly with you. Yeah. Yeah. But those things take a lot of time. And applied research is less likely to get published. At least like the important journals. Yeah. Yeah. Where's your theory? Well, I came in to fix a problem. It's pragmatic. So no theory. Well, I guess those are the hardships of academia. Thanks, everybody, for sticking around. Hopefully you enjoyed that podcast. Uh, Stay tuned. I expect to be publishing some additional talks, maybe every week or every couple weeks, sort of dependent on when my guests are ready. So stay tuned for the next one. Cheers.